Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica. Does ISIS really differ from other terrorist groups? And if so, how does its singularity complicate U.S. efforts to defeat it? And we are joined today by the author of the historical backgrounder in this issue, Mark Moyer, visiting scholar at the Foreign Policy Initiative and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Mark, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So uh, let's start there in the prompt when we asked, does ISIS really differ from other terrorist groups? Just that description, ISIS as a terrorist group, is that enough to give us a full picture. You seem to suggest in your piece that it's a necessary part of describing them, but not a sufficient one. In terms of long-term objectives, they are fairly similar in, the, in that they uh, aim to restore a global caliphate, which is based on sort of an idealized version of the early period of Islam. Uh, but in terms of how they want to achieve that, there's significant differences. Now, they both use terrorism and you know, rather brutal methods that uh, are not sanctioned by by much of Islam. Uh, but al-Qaeda early on was focused mainly on the terrorist aspect and, and not as much in terms of trying to actually govern, at least in the near term. They have shifted, I think, recognizing the limitations of the terrorist tactic, and they have made attempts to govern and had some success in places like uh, Yemen and Somalia. So they're moving – they have moved – closer in the direction of where ISIS is going. But there is a, a significant difference in terms of their uh, time frame. ISIS has really tried to inflict lots of damage in the very near term, things like the, the Paris terrorist attack, which has given them some international prestige, but it's also really attracted the wrath of the Western powers. And so now we see m most of the counterterrorism efforts focused on ISIS, and which I think is making life pretty hard for ISIS Whereas Al-Qaeda, by taking a, a less provocative stance at the moment, is, is buying time for itself to rebuild uh, in places especially like Pakistan, uh, where our, our ability to get at them is very limited. And so I think that the strategic patience of Al-Qaeda may well end up leaving them in a better position within a few years from now. There was a phrase from one of President Obama's speeches that came in for a fair amount of scrutiny. And to be fair to the president, this speech is, is a while ago now. But he said, sort of cribbing the old uh, Mike Myers Saturday Night Live formulation, he said the Islamic State is neither Islamic nor a state. We can leave aside the first part of that for now. But I'm curious about that question. Is ISIS a state? How would you answer that at this point? Yeah, I would say – they are in the sense that they govern in certain areas and they have what is essentially a capital city, city of Raqqa. Uh, you know, in some areas, they're not the dominant power. They're insurgents, but, uh, you know, they may not be recognized internationally. But when you think of all the things that a state does from you know, collecting taxes, providing services, uh, you know, they, they do all of that. And so, and that's part of what, you know, makes them so dangerous because that also it gives them complete control over you know, large amounts of people who then they can en enlist in their cause. 
Mark, are there liabilities for ISIS that come from aspirations of statehood? There, there was this notion for a while where al-Qaeda was concerned that there was going to be inevitable blowback from the populations that they were governing because they would be so restrictive. Is that something that ISIS has to worry about? That particular part of it I think is not their biggest concern because they have shown an ability to impose their will through you know, brutality that uh, makes it very difficult for anyone to turn against them. Now, if other people come in and, and assist, that, that may be possible. I think the bigger problem they face by actually being a state is that that forces you to defend specific positions. You know, when you're in the insurgents, if you face an overwhelming enemy, you can disappear into the population or go into the mountains. Whereas if you actually control territory, then it's quite a bit easier for others to attack you. And we, we're seeing that uh, you know they've su- sustained some heavy losses in places where they've actually tried to defend their cities. And, you know, in some cases, they've they've given up the, the cities, but. You know, as we see more coming from the Syrian regime, the Kurds are are coming in. You know, they're going to have, I think, a very difficult time trying to hold on to those and defend those positions, especially because you know, Syria, with the Russian support, the Kurds with American support, have a heavy firepower that can be very effective when you're attacking a fixed target. Can you give our listeners a sense of what sort of support ISIS has in the region? It's a good question, you know, and people wonder, you know, what kind of support they do have in these cities they control. It's very hard to know because there's not you know, foreign media going in there and no one's conducting surveys. I mean, certainly they've got significant support among elements of the population, and they're also getting a lot of foreign fighters coming in. Uh, though, as pressure stepped up in Syria, a lot of them are moving now towards Libya. Um, I do think you know one of the worrisome trends is that they they do seem to enjoy some sympathy from Sunni states, the Gulf states, uh, who you know don't really care for their ideology, but they're seen as an alternative to Iran and Syria, and, and you know places like Saudi Arabia, you know they they hate no one more than the Iranians, and so anyone who's against the Iranians may get some of their support, and so how you figure out how to uh, find a, a path that, that is acceptable to the Sunni powers uh, while at the same time you've got you know, research in Iran is going to be you know, one of the very difficult problems to solve in that area. And one of the big talking points for American politicians especially has been uh, that we need to rely on our partners in the region to take up sort of the lion's share of this fight. How, how practical do you think that is? Yeah, unfortunately, it's it's pretty difficult. You know, the, our partners in the region, are, most of them don't have a lot of forces that they're capable of deploying into other countries. They've got a lot of domestic problems of their own. I think, um, in in terms of trying to get Sunnis into Syria, which is you know, what we'd like to do, I think you may need a bigger U.S. commitment, or you know, you also face the possibility of of uh, if say the Saudis go in there and are, are doing things without a significant U.S. presence, uh, you know, you, you're certainly setting the stage for a larger war. If the Saudis and Iranians you know, lock heads in there, um, again, the, the, the Saudis do not seem to be willing to accept a you know, permanent suppression of the Sunnis within uh, Syria, which is, uh, you know, at the moment seems where they could be headed. 
this gets referred to all the time as, as an ideological war, which leads to a logical question. Is an ideological war, especially when it's bound up with religion, is it winnable? Yeah, I, I certainly think it's winnable now. The question is how expensive it's going to be. You know, I think in Nazi Germany is an interesting comparison. I mean, they had a, you know, extremely potent ideology within Germany, and and ultimately, you know, there was hope that there might be a way to you know, break off some of the Germans from that ideology. Um, you know, but in the end, it turned out the only way to defeat it was to invade the country and, and occupy it for decades. And, you know, that approach is the most effective. And, you know, given what we're seeing, it, you know, it may be the only way in this case. I mean, we're certainly, we, we can kill a lot of the people from ISIS, which we've been doing with drones, for example. But as long as they have areas under their control, they seem to be pretty good at recuperating, rejuvenating. And it's becoming more difficult, of course, too, now because we see ISIS as well as Al-Qaeda spreading to multiple regions, several of which have very ineffective or non-existent governments. So it's going to be, I think, certainly a decades-long process to try to stamp out these ideologies. There's a passage in your piece – I'm going to quote you to yourself here – that reads, the West's current approach to ISIS is closer to containment than to destruction. But that will change if the depredations of ISIS become painful enough. I'm curious, Mark. Do do we have any sense of what painful enough looks like? Paris was a big deal. San Bernardino was a big deal. If those aren't painful enough, what would it conceivably take? Yeah, well, it – I think – Certainly something on the order of 9-11 um, would, I think, galvanize people. That, you know, it's, a, it's also interesting to compare U.S. and Europe. It seems like uh, the Europeans have been more willing to accept these sorts of things without major backlash, and Paris is a good case. We also had the, the Madrid train bombings where the, the right. Spaniards actually ch- chose to sort of dial things back. Um, I don't think the American people will stand for the same sort of thing. So if you see another 9-11, you know, a thousand or more casualties, uh, I think certainly you will see a fundamental change, especially, of course, depends too on who the uh, president is when we get there, Uh, but also, you know, certainly ongoing fear of some kind of WMD attack, you know, a dirty nuclear bomb in in an American city, which, uh, you know, again, something like that, I think, you know, the, the sort of reluctance we've seen among much the American people, I think, could evaporate very quickly. If you know, think of the mood right after 9-11, I, I certainly think something like that could happen again. Well, that would be my final question. If you had just a few sentences that you were able to say to the next president to sort of clarify how they're thinking about ISIS, what would you tell them? I'd tell them that ISIS is – Growing in the Middle East and North Africa, and its its presence is expanding into the West. And I think um, we would be better off taking a an offensive approach and trying to defeat it or, and destroy it as quickly as we can in the places where it's growing, rather than trying to simply 
um, guard our homeland and, and uh, take a very defensive approach because, um, you know, I think as long as these people are in existence, they, they will come up with ways to do you know, more of the San Bernardinos, more of the Parises, and conceivably things quite a bit worse than that. All right. Our guest has been Mark Moyer. You can read his essay and those by other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting us online at hoover.org slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Strategica, and I'm Victor Davis Hanson.